This week, the Central Asian nation of Kazakhstan has been rocked by massive protests. Our colleague, James Marson, has reported on the region for more than a decade. How would you describe what's happening now in Kazakhstan? Chaos. Chaos. The protest started January 2nd, after the government lifted a cap on the price of gas. And the situation quickly escalated. It was a matter of days before protesters were storming and, and, and even torching administrative buildings. We've had reports from residents in Almaty, which is the largest city, and they just described chaotic scenes. You know, overnight, Thursday and Friday morning, they said they heard gunfire, that they were frightened to go out, that when they did go out, they saw that shops had been looted and their windows smashed. Authorities are saying that dozens have died in the clashes between government forces and protesters who they're calling armed terrorists. They're saying that more than a dozen police officers have been killed. In a matter of days, Kazakhstan has gone from relatively stable to the brink of revolution. So what's been astonishing about these protests is how quickly things have moved. You know, initially they were focused on the fuel price increase, some people gathering to protest about that specific economic problem that they had. But they very quickly expanded both in size, in geography across Kazakhstan, and also in what they were calling for, calling for a broader economic and political change. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, January 7th. Coming up on the show, the roots of Kazakhstan's political upheaval. This episode is brought to you by Canva. When your work looks good, you look good. So create all the stunning presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos you need with Canva. Start with one of the designer-made templates or jump ahead with the power of AI. It's a real time saver and anybody can use it. Whatever department you work in, whatever you need, Canva will help you get it done and make it look fantastic. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. Tap the banner to learn more. So Kazakhstan is a country of about 19 million people. It's very, very big. It's about the size of all of Western Europe. It's a big resource producer. So it's a big oil producer. It's got a lot of uranium. Left the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union collapsed. And Kazakhstan has been regarded as one of the most successful economies to come out of the Soviet bloc. But the economy hasn't been working for everyone. Now, Kazakhstan has a lot of resources, but a lot of people also live under the poverty line, about 1 million of the 19 million population, at the same time as there are several billionaires. Life recently got harder for the poor in Kazakhstan. On January 1st, the government lifted a long-standing cap on the price of a certain type of gas, gas that some people use for their cars. At the start of the year, the government removed those caps and it hoped that prices wouldn't rise too much. But instead, the price nearly doubled overnight, which led to protests. So you've got this type of fuel that's popular among poorer people and they're already facing inflation of about 9% year on year. So this doubling in the price really hurt them. James says the government didn't expect people in Kazakhstan to protest the rise of gas prices. It also didn't expect the unrest to escalate as quickly as it did. 
The protests started small, but they quickly got bigger. And soon, they turned deadly. James says it's been hard to know just how fast the situation was moving. It's very, very difficult for us to work out what's going on in Kazakhstan, to be perfectly frank. The internet has been down for long periods. It's not easy to get a phone connection with the country, so we're relying on eyewitness accounts. When we get through on the telephone to local residents, we've got diplomatic sources who have their own people on the ground, and we're looking at reports and videos on local news channels and social media, Russian news channels, that we then seek to verify, and obviously official statements. Have protesters, like, articulated what they want? It's been very difficult to hear from protesters and to understand exactly what their aims are, what they want, partly, I think, because there is no clear picture of exactly who is protesting here. Because on the one hand, you have activists, human rights defenders, so the people who for years have been calling for change, political change, economic change. On the other hand... You have ordinary people who are perhaps taking part in protests for the first time, who maybe aren't engaged in activism on a regular basis. Also, the president says there are groups of militant people using weapons to storm buildings. So there's a very disparate group of protesters, and they are not unified in one group. I think that's also partly because Kazakhstan does not have, uh, and has not had over the years, a unified, clear political opposition that is now able to step in and make concrete demands. So it's a very chaotic situation there right now. Many government officials resigned in the last few days, except for the country's president, Kasim Jomart Tokayev, who on Wednesday night made an unprecedented move. He called on a Russian-led military alliance to come in and help. Why would the president ask Russia to intervene? There was a point where state power looked somewhat wobbly in Kazakhstan. There were reports that state security forces had really been pushed back from Almaty, the largest city, and that they'd lost control of the airport. And clearly the president of Kazakhstan felt that he needed Russian support, not necessarily to actually use the Russian forces to engage the protesters in armed combat. In fact, the Russians and the Kazakhs have been quite clear that the aim of the Russian forces is to guard government buildings. But it may be that the reason he wanted Russian forces to come in was as much to stiffen the spines of his own security forces so that they knew that Russia had their backs and would be prepared to fight back against the people on the streets. And on Friday morning, Tokyo went a step further in a televised address to the nation. And he said he'd given the police and the army permission to fire on what he called terrorists and bandits without warning. Wow. Yeah, I should just add also that terrorists is a term that authoritarian leaders in Central Asia used to describe protesters of various stripes. Mm. But he said that there are armed bandits, armed terrorists going around, shooting, storming buildings, engaging security forces. President Tokayev says there can be no talks with what he calls armed terrorists and bandits, and he's promised to have his own forces liquidate them. James says that the current unrest has been brewing for years. It really started under the rule of Takayev's predecessor, who spent almost three decades in power. So tensions go back a long way. The country 
was ruled from the end of the Soviet Union till recently by a man called Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. The US very much hoped that, along with other countries in the region, other former Soviet republics, that it would move towards democracy after the fall of the Soviet Union. That didn't really happen. What happened under Nazarbayev is an authoritarian system took hold where he was the main decision maker in the country and there wasn't really much space for political opposition at all. Opponents accused him of not only of stifling dissent, but also of taking control of the economy and using it to enrich his own family and his allies. He always denied this. The first strong sign of discontent became really visible in 2011 when more than a dozen protesters were gunned down in an oil town called Jeanne-Argen, where locals had been demonstrating about low wages and poor working conditions. Then after that, you saw a series of other economic protests. So about the fall in the value of the national currency in 2014 as the price of oil went down, about a proposed land reform that Kazakhs were worried would end up handing land to Chinese investors in 2016. In each instance, the government broke up the protests or responded with violence. Political opponents hoped the government's attitude toward protesters might change in 2019, when Nazarbayev decided to step back from his role as president. During his rule, there were, as I mentioned, uh, various protests against the different economic policies. And there was also some tension over the fact that there was no real space given for any political opposition, any political dissent. Um, And then when he stepped down as president in 2019, what happened was people felt that maybe this was a time for some changes. What actually happened? That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. When Kazakhstan's longtime ruler, Nursultan Nazarbayev, stepped down in 2019, many people thought it could bring about political change. Instead, Nazarbayev handpicked his successor, current President Qasem Tokayev, and stayed in a powerful role as head of the country's Security Council. President Tokayev promised some overhauls. He promised he was going to open the political system up. But the complaints are that, that he, he did not do that. He quickly renamed the capital of the country, Nur Sultan, after the president. But then opponents soon started complaining that the changes were only cosmetic and that there was nothing being done to spread wealth and power more fairly. So then protests and, and dissent, discontent took on a more political tone. People then lost faith. People lost hope. 
the political and the economic situation was going to get better. And the result is what we see today. Even though the government has said it will lower gas prices, protests have continued. But James says that Russian involvement may change the equation. President Vladimir Putin has spoken several times at Tokayev, according to the Russian government. Putin has sent uh, paratroopers, and along with soldiers from other allies, uh, the number of troops should reach around 2,500. The Russian defense ministry says their forces have already helped to retake the airport in Almaty, which is the largest city, alongside um, Kazakh forces. Now, they're supposed to stay for a few days or weeks. They're supposed to be protecting government buildings. Kazakh authorities have said that that is going to be their main aim. But analysts are wondering whether they may stay longer in order to give Russia more influence in the country. And in any case, uh, this whole situation makes President Tokayev much more dependent on Russia, who has effectively bailed him out in this situation. Today, in an address to the Kazakh people that was televised, he thanked Putin for his rapid, warm, and comradely response to the request for troops. So there's obviously a degree of personal gratitude there from President Tokayev towards Putin for sending these troops as quickly as possible. Tokayev is inviting Russia into Kazakhstan in a way that his predecessor never did. And that could change the relationship between the two countries. So Putin wants stability on his borders. He wants influence in the countries around them, and he's prepared to use his armed forces in order to get it and to retain it. I mean, look at the situation in Ukraine and in Belarus in recent years. In Ukraine in 2014, you have a Russian-backed president who was overthrown by street protests. Putin responded by seizing Crimea, and he then fomented protests in eastern Ukraine, launched a covert invasion there to carve out two separatist territories. And then in 2020, there were protests in Belarus, which is another former Soviet republic, and they threatened to remove the Russian-backed president there. Putin stepped in with economic and political support, and the president there, Alexander Lukashenko, quashed the protests with his own security forces. For Putin, this is about shoring up the government of an ally and assuring stability. He doesn't like revolutions in neighboring countries. He blames dissent and protests on Western meddling, even when they are primarily popular protests. Where do you think things could go from here in Kazakhstan? Well, from what the president has said today, uh, he appears confident that he's going to be able to get control back of the country. He said that the country is largely back under the control of the government. And he said that he was going to use his security forces to make sure that the whole of the country comes back under government control. It's very difficult to see how protesters could therefore resist in any significant way the full force of not only the Kazakh security forces, but also backed up by Russia. Russia has also said that if required, there could be more forces provided. Uh, we shall see. I mean, it's interesting that the reports of fighting are still going on. So it's obviously not, not over yet. That's all for today, Friday, January 7th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Kate Leinbaugh and me, Ryan Knudsen. 
The show is produced by Annie Baxter, Catherine Brewer, Pia Gadkari, Rachel Humphreys, Matt Kwong, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Afif Nasuli, Enrique Perez de la Rosa, Sarah Platt, Alan Rodriguez Espinosa, Willa Rubin, Kayla Stokes, and Annie Rose Strasser, with help from Marilyn Fletcher. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapok, with help this week from Sam Baer and Katherine Anderson. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Bobby Lord, Emma Munger, So Wiley, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.